Hi, Andy. Hi, Philip. Hello. Hi, listeners. And Hi, welcome. Listen- hey, yeah. Hey, whoa. Hey, you. All right. Let's not rush to this. What do you mean? That's what we do. We rush hey, through listeners, things. Hey, listeners. How you doing? No, we got to, you know, one of the things I'm very proud of us for mm-hmm. during this podcast is how much uh, that I believe we do to make the listener feel acknowledged and included. And if we just rush past all, I mean, one thing we're not doing anymore is the like reminding people to rate and review us. Yeah, we because finished we don't that. need to. We finished it. We finished it. It's done. It's done. That was a chapter in our lives, and the chapter is closed. Exactly. But that was a way to make the listener feel included. Now that we don't do that, I feel if we just rush through this, like, hey, Andy, hey, Philip, hi, listener, and here we are. We're kind of just rushing them in the door and saying, all right, get into the part. We're not. We're not making any kind of small talk with them. You know. Okay. Okay. How about this? Hi, Andy. Hi, Philip. And hi, Brian. This week we're shouting out, <laughs> if your name's Brian, hi. If your name is Brian, this is your week, buddy. Yep. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Glad you're here. And how many, we love you. How many Brians do you think listen to us? I mean, there's got to be at least one. I know. I'm, I don't want to say I know for sure, but there is. I do know a Brian who I believe listens to the show. Okay. Well, then, Brian, this is for you. We love you, Brian. <laughs> we do. We do. But there are other Bryans. Yeah, and that applies to all Bryans. This is for all of you Bryans. Yeah, this if, is a blanket yeah. Brian statement for sure. Bryans that listen to this show. What about the Johns? They're not going to hey, feel included. this is Brian's week. Don't take yeah. away from Brian. Hey, John. Hey, Dan. Hey. <laughs> no, stop it. That's for next week. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's Brian's week. You don't go to somebody's birthday and say, well, what about other people's birthdays on other days? No, you let them have their day. Okay. So this is Brian's episode. Should we also include, because Brian's a pretty masculine name, should we also include like uh, Bria or Brianna or is there a Brian? (laughs) Is that a name? (laughs) Spelled B-R-Y-A-N-N. Brian? Sure. Brea? Why not? We'll just say. Brianne? Breeze? Brian? Hey, Bree, that's a good one. Brian's and Brianna's. This episode is for you. Yeah, perfect. All right, that's we covered a lot there. I think we did. So, hi and welcome to Look Good for the Boys. Everyone not named those has already stopped listening. Hi, and welcome to Look Good for the Boys, oh, yeah, those of the, you that are still left. We're a horror gossip podcast. Boom. There I you go. I am Philip. I'm Andy. Okay, so. What are we doing? We are in the middle of Pride Month. Happy, hey, it's Pride Month. Things are heating up. Yeah, they really are. Whew. Oh, I don't need, yeah, you know what? We should probably <laughs> not say anything like that because we're recording this far enough in advance and I'm already, I don't want to get into this. No. But I'm scared. <laughs> Yeah, this pride, this, pride this pride is shaping up to be scary. Yeah, which I mean, it makes sense, but like scary in an existential way, not like ooh spooky, you know? Yeah, not, <laughs> not fun. Scary. Not the scary we like. Right. The scary that we need to arm ourselves against. Yeah, real world scary. But uh, we record this far enough in advance that I'm like, I don't want, <laughs> I don't want to tempt any fates. Yeah, I, I mean, anybody that knows anything knows what we're talking yeah, about yeah, and yeah, gets yeah, it. Yeah. So, you know, it doesn't even feel right to say, like, happy pride, celebrate pride. Let's just say uh, we're prideful. Yeah, we're We are proud I, of our identities yeah. in the LGBTQ community. <laughs> I'm proud that I like all kinds of butts. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm proud of. <laughs> uh, so... In honor of Pride, I wanted to do a little game. Yeah. Or a little new segment. Okay, sure. That I'm going to call The Gay Agenda. Oh, gosh. Jesus Christ. <laughs> okay. So, is, are we taking a hard right or a hard left? What's going on? <laughs> well, look, if we're going to be accused of things, we might as well do the things I we're mean, being accused of. Yeah, I mean, look, you can. A lot of people are throwing around a certain word these days. You know what? Fuck it. I am satanic. Meet <laughs> me in the Target parking lot, bitch. <laughs> 
So today, our gay agenda is since, you know, we've been spending the month kind of doing queer reads of a gay filmmaker, James Whale. Yep. Let's... Heard of him? <laughs> so before we dive back into to whaling, oh, God. you I... ate that. I'll just stop. Before we dive back into James Whale, <laughs> somehow that doesn't help. <laughs> Before we before go down we, on James before Whale. Before we spit in our palms and get back into James Whale. <laughs> I want to pick a movie or two and to make it gay. Okay, sure. You know, kind of like, like kind of like what we did for Eli Roth, only <laughs> yeah. we don't have to go that aggressively straight. Yeah. But let's take a, you know, a horror movie we love that isn't gay enough and make it gay. Okay, I this love, is our gay yeah, agenda. I love this. What do we got? When I say straight horror, what do you oh, think of besides Eli Roth? What do you think of? I mean, the first one that comes to mind is Saw. Oh, yeah. Well, hmm. as much as I love the series, it, it's kind of straight. It is kind of straight. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. The Saw movies are a little straight. So how do we gay up the Saw movies? I think just any horror from like 2000, what? Two. Two to like 2000. Seven has the potential to be a little too straight. Yeah. <laughs> it was a very straight time. Yeah, there's a lot of dude bro straight horror filmmaking going on in the in the yachts. So yeah. So anyway. It, we have a lot to choose. Saw. From. There, I mean that's how that's eleven movies now. Yeah. Well t- ten. So by this fall we'll have ten Saw movies. So we don't need to queer up all of them. I just, you know, let's <laughs> that's throw a lot of straights. Let's to get in one room. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not here to make an episode out of this. You put I just that throw- many straight horror movies in one room, they're going to start calling each other slurs. <laughs> All I want is just to throw a little glitter and a few rainbow flags in, in here. <laughs> just put on some music, get them in the mood, have them face some things about themselves. <laughs> the Saw movies. Wow. Okay. I mean, first of all, look, it's... You gotta you gotta zhuzh up that warehouse stuff, you know? Yeah, it's, it's so dismal. I get it. It's industrial. And look, the industrial music scene is queer. Mm-hmm. Like, so much of that is queer. And the Saw movies have some of that energy, but it's like the new metalification of it. You know what I mean? Like, it's not as... You gotta... Indu- the industrial music that I know, the queer industrial music, had some frills to it. So you got to get some frills in this set design, production design. Yeah, I mean, part of the warehouse aesthetic that is not gay enough is that it's just too dank. I mean, and, yeah, it's, it can, and, and and kind of bare. Here's the thing: it's either too dank or not dank enough. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's either got to be like if you're gonna if it's gonna be dank, it has to be dripping. Yeah, it has to be like mildewy and like a little soaked and stained. If you don't want to go that far with it, then it can't be dank. It's got to be a little brighter, a little more vibrant, you know? And there also needs to be chains. Oh, you... I mean, yeah, where are all the chains? I mean, there, there are chains. Don't Just get me wrong. Just not enough. Just not enough. And I mean, here's the thing. If you're going to do strobe lights, because the, they do strobe effects with a lot of the cuts, the quick cutting, even in the in the lighting in this in the Saw movies. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't mind that music video editing thing. There's almost something quaint about it to me now. Like at the time I was like, ugh, stop. And now I look at it and I'm like, oh, that's cute, you know? But it's there's no beat to it. You know what I mean? Like it's, you can't dance to it. Right, and, yeah. And there needs to be, like if you're going to strobe, you've also got a glitter. Yeah, exactly. You know? It's It's... You Throw know. some paints around in there too. We need more club vibe. Yeah, energy. yeah, exactly. Like like warehouse club. Like don't I don't want it to be a new metal music video. I want it to be a rave or or like an industrial dance party. If we're gonna like lean into the EDMness of it all and away from the like limp biscuit of it all. So yeah, you gotta queer up the the warehouses and the the traps are fun. Here's the thing: you want to know what queer saw is. It's abominable Dr. Fibes. Mm. It's Theater of Blood. It's the the Vincent Price revenge movies. Those are the spiritual forefathers to Saw, and they're gay. <laughs> okay, so how would you... I mean, because I, I agree, the traps are fun. How would you gay up the traps, though? Here's the thing. The traps are gory, and the gags, the gore gags are great. And mm-hmm. it is like, there is something like kind of inherently queer or questioning, right, about that level of violence. Like there's almost a kitsch. Yeah. Almost a camp. But 
look, I'm reluctant to say this because of how transgressive you can get with this, but like sexualize the traps a little bit. You Ooh, know, I like, like that idea. I don't want to say go seven with it. That's fucked. But like seven understood like the Clive Barker angle or the SNM angle that mm. it was at work in that kind of a thing. So you got it like, I mean, you don't want to take it that far. You don't want to be that harsh, but like start like pulling dicks off. I was more thinking like just more phallic and yonic. Is that the opposite of phallic? Yeah, 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 yeah. Phallic and yonic energy into the design of the traps. Oh, I mean, you got to look, you got to have a concept. And there's also got to be an aesthetic at work in the concept. And that's the aesthetic of the Saw movie Traps is largely like, you know, shop class. You know, it's, it's, it's very mechanic. It's very grease and hardware. And that can be fun. And some of the traps actually have like some interesting visual stuff going on too. But mm-hmm. like, here's the thing. Maybe you don't got to do nothing to the traps. Maybe. Yeah, maybe just keep a phallic or yonic thing in mind when yeah. designing them. Yeah, like a little Giger or a little I was Barker. Just thinking, yeah, Giger. A little and Cronenberg. Throw in some leather, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, or if you're talking Cronenberg, maybe make some of the traps a little fleshy. You oh, know? yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Give them a little personality, too. Mm-hmm. You know? Okay, so I think what it all comes down to, right, when you're going to talk about queering up the Saw movies, is it comes down to Jigsaw. And I love you, Tobin Bell. You're an icon. Mm-hmm. But you are straight. I wonder if he is. Maybe he's not. Maybe, right? Maybe he's not. Maybe, maybe not. I don't I know. Mean, he... I don't know anything about Tobin Bell's personal life. Oh, I was thinking of uh, Jigsaw. Jigsaw. Oh, the character. Yeah. yeah. Well, my thing is like Tobin Bell, you're, I, I just think he's got his energy is a little too straight. Yeah. So you, you got to get, get him out of there. Or you know what would have actually solved that problem without even removing Jigsaw? Well, I mean, he removes himself, but uh, is if, if one of his accomplices, like Mark, what if Mark was gay? Well, I, I think we got we to gotta bring in not necessarily new blood, but new blood to the Saw franchise. Mm. You got to bring an outsider into this. And this is, I think, this is a masterstroke. If I do say so myself. Oh, yeah. Stroke. Masters. Yes. <laughs> you replace Tobin Bell with John Waters. And John Waters is our new jigsaw. Oh, man. Like, and then everything else will just kind of fall into place after that, I think. You know what I mean? Yeah. You don't even have to try. If you, yeah. if you put John Waters in a movie. Yeah. You I mean, just, just the puppets. <laughs> you know, the Billy puppet. I love it. It could be gayer. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. It's a little too Tim Burton-y. You know what I mean? And Tim Burton is like fake queer. <laughs> oh my god you're so tim, right tim, tim burton, burton is, is fake queer <laughs> tim burton is like well i mean yeah it's it's mall goth but more than that it's like queer stuff for straight people mm-hmm. yep that's the tim I mean, burton aesthetic to me that is kind of what mall goth is yeah, yeah really yeah <laughs> it is but i mean i don't want to pass judgment we all got to start somewhere i mean i personally i think tim burton's films are genius all the way up to sleepy hollow uh, through Sleepy Hollow, I yes. should say. And that's my cutoff point for him. And it's really interesting. I have found people talking to people. Lots of people have different cut. I always just assumed Sleepy Hollow, that's it. That's the cutoff point for Burton. And then a lot of people like Big Fish too, which I don't get, but you know, go with God. Yeah, Big Fish is where I hear most people set, set the and, cutoff. And but I, I'm with you, Sleepy Hollow. Yeah. And then nothing. And then nothing. Nothing after that. Not one thing. Not a single thing. Sorry. Billy's a little too bit Tim Burtony. The mm-hmm. puppet, you know, we got to get, you know what would be great if Alaska, was it Alaska and, I can't remember that are drag queen, they made a doll called Little Pound Cake, and you just make Little Pound Cake the new Billy. That's the new doll. Uh, I just looked at pictures, and <laughs> holy shit, I want that to be in the new Saw movie. Right? I want so, this okay, to be. Little, little Pound Cake is the new <laughs> Billy doll, John Waters is Jigsaw, uh, I got, you know what, I got no notes on the pig mask, love a pig mask. Yeah, that's fine. Love it. And then, like, yeah, then the traps, the funness of the traps, the well, they'll, it'll naturally get a little more queer with these things going on. You know, honestly, I think we solved it. <laughs> I think here's the thing: John Waters, that alone is just like opening up the gay valve. Everything else that you named after that was just going to naturally occur. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. know. There so you yeah, go. We, we we John Waters is our new jigsaw. Done. We spewed all over. <laughs> we spewed gay all over the Saw movies. Yeah. There, there's our gay agenda for today. Yeah. Okay. 
Let's get back to what we're here for, which is continuing our month-long celebration of the daddy of horror. Yeah, horror's daddy. Our daddy Jimmy, whale. Jimmy whale. <laughs> so, yes. Gosh, where do we leave off? Old Dark House. Yes. So, so 1932 is where we left off. Old mm-hmm. Dark House. And Old Dark House was like kind of successful, not really. It kind of became a forgotten film and then became literally a lost film for quite a while and then came back and has had like a resurgence of popularity since. But at the time of its release, people liked it, didn't love it, etc. And it kind of left. So at this point, the next thing that Universal had for him was the sequel to All Quiet on the Western Front, which was the film that basically knocked Journey's End out of the public consciousness. And they get the rights to the sequel. James Whale was going to direct it. And then it didn't happen. And a bunch of stuff happened and it, it got postponed. So the next thing James Whale did was this movie called Kiss Before the Mirror. And it's a thriller with like a bunch of legal stuff and murder and it's pre-code. But he wasn't allowed to really work with any of his usual people except Gloria Stewart was in was in it who he just done Old Dark House with and it's based on a Hungarian play and there's not a whole lot to talk about it other than the fact that you know Alfred Hitchcock gets a lot of credit for Psycho and for the fact that you know he cast Janet Lee this star to play Marion Crane and then audiences are shocked when that character is killed mm-hmm. yes it was pretty revolutionary for the time but here's the thing and I hesitate when talking about stuff like this to do the like so and so did it first because Typically, you'll always find somebody else did it earlier. Mm-hmm. And in this case, James Whale did that with The Kiss Before the Mirror. He cast Gloria Stewart, who had just become a big star, and she dies in the opening. And it was a big shock <laughs> to people at the time. So that's 27 years before Psycho. <laughs> so in that way, James Whale also contributed something else to horror when he was making a non-horror film. So Kiss Before the Mirror happened, and the next thing was Invisible Man. So by this point, Universal had gone two years now without making a profit. The film industry was said to be depression-proof in the early 30s, but it was starting to hit the studios. And they needed a hit. They needed something big. So did James Whale. They'd been trying to adapt The Invisible Man since they bought the rights in 31. It went through like so many different rewrites and so many different people attached to it. James Whale was attached, then he left, then Robert Flory, then Robert Flory left... James Whale came back, and the script still needed work, so he brought his friend R.C. Sheriff, who wrote Journey's End, the play that Whale directed that got him the big you know, notoriety. So he came over from England to write the script, and uh, he was also friends with H.G. Wells. Hmm. Like, they just happened to be friends. So he was able to run a bunch of ideas by H.G. Wells to make sure that he was writing the script that H.G. Wells would also approve of. Invisible Man was largely developed as a project for Karloff because they had this guy, they wanted to use him, they knew he was a bankable star, but nobody had been using him right in the last couple years. So the idea was always Invisible Man is going to be Karloff's next big thing. Karloff had a big money dispute at this point with Universal. They were reducing salaries in general, but they had also like waived a couple payments to him while he was on loan to another studio, shooting The Ghoul with Ernest Thesiger. Sorry, sidetrack. Uh-huh. They'd waived a payment to him. He came back from that film, and another payment was due, and they tried to waive that. He was like, no, you're going to pay me, or I'm not going to be in The Invisible Man. And the studio was like, sorry, we don't have the money. And he walked. And it's probably a good thing, honestly, because him and Whale were not super... Their friendship was a little on the rocks at this point, mm-hmm. and... There's a good chance that had Karloff done this movie, he might not have agreed to do Bride of Frankenstein. Like, that's conjecture purely. No, There's no way to know that. But, like, we might not have gotten what we got with Bride of Frankenstein had Karloff agreed to work on this film with, with Whale. Well, and then instead we get a very interesting performance <laughs> by Claude Rains. By Claude Rains. But even before Claude Rains was brought on, the next thing Whale thought of was his buddy Colin Clive from Frankenstein. Because he knew that for The Invisible Man, he was going to need someone with a very distinctive voice, a very appealing voice. But Clive didn't want to do it because he had just done a bunch of movies. And there's a, his, his personal life is very interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's very little known about it. But everything I learn about him makes me want to know a lot more. But what I do know is he didn't have a great marriage. You know, to the point where it's rumored that they're a lavender couple. 
but she didn't come to Hollywood with him. And he'd been in Hollywood for a few years now making more movies. And he had just wrapped on two things. And he was he was homesick. And he had some stuff to work out in his personal life. So he went back to England instead of agreeing to do it, which is also good. Because knowing what I know about Colin Clive, he might not have survived the process of making this movie. Like, he only lived for another four years anyway. But, like, the process of making The Invisible Man might have accelerated that. Or might have made it so that he wouldn't have agreed to do Bride of Frankenstein either. Whatever. Point is, the cast is set, the crew is set, he's got Ted Kent coming back, Arthur Edison coming back, all of his these usual collaborators coming back, and other friends, and he doesn't have a lead. But he knows that his buddy Claude Rains, that he knows from the West End days in the theater scene, is in Hollywood trying to make it as an actor. He's tested for something, but he's never been in anything. He's still mostly doing stage. But he also knows Claude Rains is a great voice. So he gets Claude Rains to do it. So Claude Rains is now our Invisible Man. And they shoot the movie. And look, it took two years from the point where they bought the rights and started trying to develop it to it being wrapped and in the can and ready for release. Two years, almost. Mm -hmm. 22 months, I think, was the exact. But it was grueling. It was a lot of reshoots, a lot of experimentation. And it was expensive. And it was a huge gamble. But... It was a gamble that paid off. Ultimately, it was the first time in two years Universal had made a profit again, like as a whole. And it was due to James Whale in this film. And it was advertised more as like a spectacle than a horror movie. Sort of like a Jurassic Park situation. Mm -hmm. Which makes a lot of sense, considering the effects at work in this film in 1933. But yeah, it was expensive. It took a long time. And uh, it taxed a lot of people, but I think the results fucking speak for themselves. It's just one of the best movies. Well, then let's talk about it. Yeah, let's talk about it. All right. (laughs) Okay. 1933's The Invisible Man. We are coming up on 90 years of The Invisible Man. Yeah, wow. This uh, October. So let's go way back. (laughs) Way back when... And I'll do I'll do a quick summary of the plot for those sure. of you who don't know. What I mean, the Invisible you Man's should about. just watch it. Uh, yeah, it's great. Like all of I mean, all of the movies we're gonna, we talk about this month. I'm like, just watch it. It's so good. So we have mad scientist Jack Griffin has discovered the formula. Mad, I don't know. Mad's a pretty strong word for it. <laughs> Fine. We have scientist Jack Griffin who will be going mad. <laughs> we have misunderstood scientist <laughs> who has discovered the formula for making himself invisible in the form of a chemical called monocane, which basically, I love this little detail that it's basically like essentially bleaching himself invisible. <laughs> Just, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> monocane is a chemical that removes color from things. The science, the understanding of science you needed to explain away shit like this at this era, man, you could just say whatever the fuck you wanted. I mean, now there's like hard, you know, hard sci-fi has like spoiled us to the point where like everything has to be so. But back in 1933, they were like, I don't know. It's uh, we'll make up this thing that say we'll say it's real. It comes from a flower somewhere. I mean, it's essentially magic. Yeah, it's basically magic. So he's invisible and he now needs to figure out a way to reverse the effects of this. So he goes to the village of Iping. Iping? 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 I think they say Iping in the movie. Okay. And stays at the Lion's Head Inn, gets a room there to try to to discover the formula for reversing this in peace and solitude away from all his colleagues, not wanting them to know what he has done. Unfortunately, monocane has a, a sad side effect of making you a little bonkers. Mm, I think it makes you... Powerful? Too sane. I think that's <laughs> the problem. Yeah. It makes you sane in an insane society. So he starts to lose it at society. <laughs> he starts to get a little violent. Yeah, he starts to get a little megalomaniacal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, who hasn't talked about wanting to make the world grovel at their feet? Right. Let he, without the desire to make the world grovel at his feet, uh, cast the first stone through a window <laughs> and say, we're doing our part. <laughs> so... Yeah, he he gets discovered and at at the inn and kind of loses it, strips naked and starts terrorizing people, yeah. mm-hmm. and then it becomes this you know nationwide manhunt. Yeah, as big he's, old manhunt for him. Yeah, and you know, not broad strokes, he reconnects with his fiance. His, yeah, his intended 
uh, um, Flora. Flora. And her, and her father, father, Dr. Cranley. And played by Henry Travers, Clarence from It's a Wonderful Life. And his colleague, Dr. Kemp. Uh, and he's trying to Kemp. bully Kemp into helping him come up with this cure. Things don't go as planned. He ends up just causing more and more mayhem. <laughs> kills a lot of people. Kills a lot of people. Like this, The body count in this movie is pretty fucking this high. This dude has... This dude's doing fucking like seven movies of Jason numbers. Yeah, in one scene alone, he kills something like 120 people. <laughs> he derails a fucking train. He Pete Buttigieg's <laughs> a train. So... Yeah, it, it it doesn't end well for him, put it that way. Yeah. No, so they, that's broad strokes. No, yeah, like, you can't, look, you can be an invisible man. You got to keep a low profile, you know? Because the, the, it's like Grand Theft Auto, you know? You derail one train, suddenly you got a five-star alert, and they're sending helicopters after you. Can I just say, though, I love that the train derailment that kills over 100 people... <laughs> Is sandwiched between him just pushing a couple guys off a cliff yeah. and him robbing a bank, like yeah. and, the, and the two. And he's not even robbing the bank for himself. No, he's just giving he's away giving the money. money away. <laughs> money, 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 money. But it, the the two sandwiched things feel very kind of like you know his whole his whole thing is he's just very prankster. It's like he's he's like oh, he rules. He's a prankster god. Yeah. But then that sandwich between a train derailment, <laughs> like it just feels so, so extreme. The thing is, is that he said he was going to do it. He, he did. You know, he's a man of his word. You mm-hmm. know. I also like that in the one of the manhunt montages, we cut back to him just taking a nap. <laughs> He's just sleeping while we're watching the gears of society turn against him. Well, I mean, doing the shit that he does would make you tired. Requires some rest, yeah. Yeah, it's cold outside when you have to go about naked. I do love that he spends half the movie naked. That's, okay, that's a big part of this movie, is just like, no, this character is diegetically, explicitly, literally, textually naked for large chunks of this movie. Mm -hmm. and Just a naked man running around. Causing mayhem. At one point, he rides a bicycle naked. That's a pride parade. <laughs> That's San yeah. Francisco in June. He did his part. <laughs> yeah, and he says, I, now we do our part. Well, he throws a brick through a window. Hey, that's pride, too. That's part yeah. of pride, too. He's protesting. But he also, at one point, fights off cops to stay in a bar. <laughs> Stonewall, baby. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm going to be doing a lot of stretching during this i think <laughs> i don't think you need to you don't really need to because the thing is is that right off the bat the movie starts with quotation marks around the title which is like i know that at the time it didn't mean what it means now but i just can't help but imagine like james whale talking about his new movie the invisible man like with air quotes you uh-huh. know oh i'm making this picture <laughs> the invisible man <laughs> right air quotes around like you're just being sarcastic about it Yes, yes, the monster. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. The fiend who doesn't fit into society because he's queer. Mm-hmm. So he has to wear the clothes of, you know, to, to blend in. He has to, like, cover himself yeah. from head to oh, toe. Oh, I mean, that's the other thing, is that he is in drag. Mm-hmm. Anytime he's visible, he's in a costume. Okay, real quick, by the way, what's your favorite Invisible Man look? He's got a lot of great outfits in this movie yeah i mean the intro look is iconic because of the nose thing yes and And the fact that he bothers to wear a wig he's wearing a wig hey look it's not drag if you're not wearing a wig Mm -hmm. he's wearing a wig but it's a i love that it's a wig under some under the bandages yeah Yeah. uh and then the coat and the hat you know just the whole it's a it's an entire ensemble he put a lot into that look yeah but also the the smoking jacket look. Ooh. See, that's the thing. Okay, the first look I is I always want to go with that with the you know the hat and the coat. You know, it, again, it's iconic. But that's him trying to fit in. You know what I mean? Mm. That's him like trying to pass, right? Yeah. That's him trying to pass as a man, as a visible man. And the smoking jacket with the just the bandages with no wig, no false nose, no prosthesis, no goggles, just those like kind of chic. Uh, I fucking love those visors. Yeah. Like, it's so cool. And it also feels like, I mean, for one, he's doing a bald is beautiful with his rap, you know, Mm -hmm. because he's not bothering with a wig. But it also just, it feels like an aesthetic. It feels him. 
You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, this is who I am when I want to be seen. It's like, no, this is him thriving. The other look at the beginning of the movie, that's him frazzled, trying to fit in, trying not to be noticed. I mean, which he's never going to do a good job of not being noticed. I think I do love it just because, I mean, yeah, it's it's his drag, but also it's so unsettling. Like, yeah. it's clear it's, it's like, yeah. not him. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it's monstrous drag. For sure. Invisible man on Boulay Brothers Dragula when? <laughs> so, yeah, he comes into this movie as a monster. Jack Griffin, yeah. And and this intro to him is him entering what seems to me to be a pretty fucking straight space, <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. So, again, we're entering we're into this world through the, the yokels, you know, the yahoos, the locals. The villagers at the bar, the regulars at the bar, mm-hmm. like we get a whole picture of who these people are before Jack Griffin even really comes into the, I mean, he's in the second shot of the movie, but before like we really meet him, we're getting to know the space. And that's James Whale's whole theater background. That's R.C. Sheriff's whole interest in the idea of the commonplace as opposed to the spectacular or the fantastic like he wants a believable world and again if you're going to be doing these crazy effects and this crazy fantastical concept you need to ground it in reality and they really do a great job of that but yeah that world is very straight and it's very pointedly james whale's world he said this explicitly that like yes it takes place in like you know west sussex or whatever but, like, that is supposed to be his town. That's Dudley. He very much, like, made it look like and feel like the black country villages that he came from, which is a very, yeah, straight, working class world. Mm-hmm. And you feel that James Whale loves them, but also, like, he kind of wants to Jack Griffin them a little bit. Also, a gender point, the women. How they're all in the they're back all room. in the back room on one table, yeah, like just kind of huddled. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, I the found men that are really just like having a good time, with the exception, obviously, of uh, uh, Jenny and Millie. And Millie, oh my god, okay, Una, motherfucking O'Connor, people, legend. What a delight yes. she is! Oh my god, oh my god, I love her so much, and we get to talk about her next week too. Oh, we're gonna get to talk about her, yeah. And come on, what's queer horror without a shrieking old hag? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, she is a scenery chewer. Oh my God, yeah. Just her presence. So Claude Rains, like, we get into a whole lot about the backstory of his relationship with this film and the performance and everything. But in the case of Una O'Connor specifically, he was she was the one performer he couldn't upstage. Yeah. Like, when they were shooting. He was constantly, like backing other actors into corners and stuff and like just overwhelming them with his performance. But he struggled with Una O'Connor <laughs> because she's a fucking yeah, force, man. You can't act around you know, Una <laughs> no, O'Connor. It's impossible. No, it's Una O'Connor's scene and the rest of you are just in it. <laughs> yeah. To that point, I do remember reading that um, Gloria Stewart really didn't like working with Claude Rain specifically because uh, what did she, how did she put it? I thought this was hilarious uh, that he kept backing her into the scenery yeah, and yeah. hampering her chances to perform. Yeah. Which is like a thing in theater, which is what Claude Rains's whole experience was in at this point. And I guess like when she was, when that was happening, James Whale would constantly have to be like, all right, Claude, stop. <laughs> We're walking back over here and this is where you're taking the scene. That is, yeah, that's funny. What a dick. <laughs> I mean, look, Claude Rains was married six times. He was probably not an easy person to get along with. So back to the movie. That moment when he walks into the bar and all eyes are on him. Like, I know what that feels like. Mm-hmm. You know, it, this is a weirdo walking into a redneck bar. Yeah. And it's like you can hear the record scratch, you know, and everybody just stops and looks at him. So like immediately this movie is like, it's hard to say what whose shoes it wants to put you in. You know, whether you're supposed to identify with the villagers there and like see, oh man, this fucking guy is a weirdo in our space and we got to be scared of him. Or if you're supposed to identify with Jack Griffin in this moment. Because, you know, especially if you're queer and you're from certain parts of this country, you know that feeling. Mm-hmm. You know that feeling of walking into a space that is going to be hostile to you. So you feel automatically a little bit of, yeah, I know what that's like. But then Jack Griffin's just like, 
assertive, you know, and he's not going to take any shit right. <laughs> from these bumpkins. Well, I mean, there's also this, there's a very whale thing at play with Jack Griffin and his relationship to the people of this village. Yeah. And, and it's, it's made ex- pretty explicit later when he's talking to Flora about how he basically entered this world of science specifically to pull himself out of poverty. Yes, yes. And to join the upper classes. Yeah, which is, that's James Whale, baby. It, that's exactly James Whale. And so his disdain for the, the, the people of this village and specifically this bar is almost this overcompensation. Oh, yeah, yeah. I got to prove myself. Well, even in that... When he's talking to Flora and he says, and there's a class consciousness and then he's like, yeah, I came from poverty and we're, uh, I'm working my way up. And I started doing this because I need to make a name for myself. And this, the reason I took on this dangerous experiment was to prove myself. But now that I am invisible, I can rob banks and I can be powerful. And it's like, he very quickly overcompensates himself well past that because he, yeah, it's, it's like I was in poverty. So I got into science and then I got into science. I did this radical experiment. The experiment works. So now I'm going to rob banks, but then he robs a bank and he doesn't give a fuck about the money. Mm-hmm. It's just, he's constantly pushing past whatever boundary or whatever goal he had set for himself. He gets to there and he's like, Oh, well, I still feel empty. So what's next? You know, which is a very fucking relatable thing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, he basically just becomes this agent of chaos, a trickster god, yeah, you I know? Mean, that's the other thing is that, like, most of the time, he's having fun, you know? And it's hard to not see James Whale see himself in that. That, like, I'll show you all, but it's like a prank, you know? Mm-hmm. He's mostly doing, like, harmless pranks, and then every Minus now and the then murders. he murders somebody. <laughs> you know what I'm going to say? Other than the train day where, look... I'm not going to try to defend derailing a train, okay? That's an act of terrorism. What a bad dude. Yeah. Sure. Up until then, mm, a lot of his murders eh, feel kind of justifiable to me. Mm-hmm. Well, and he does have this speech about being an equal opportunity murderer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To show that we make no distinction. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Um, jumping back a little bit, I do want to point out something that I find really interesting. There's a couple themes that keep coming up in the dialogue that I think have a very queer read. And obviously, anytime you have mad scientist stuff, you're going to get the whole yeah. meddling in where man should not meddle kind of <laughs> yeah. thing, which is said multiple times. Yeah, but, things men should leave alone. <laughs> like, like other men. Other men and their <laughs> parts. <laughs> but there's, Frankenstein. There is also this whole thing about like closed doors, drawn blinds. Oh, like, yeah. So first you have um, Kemp and he says, straightforward scientists have no <laughs> need for barred doors and drawn blinds. Yeah. You know, which, I mean, that, that says a lot. Well, we have, and even with Kemp, yeah, doesn't he also have like a bit of business with like closets? I feel like he like opens a cabinet up at one point and talks about the things that used to be behind these doors. It's, and he's talking about the secrets all the time. Griffin's secrets. And I mean, it's, it's also with Kemp and Flora and Cranley, we get a revisit of the Frankenstein dynamic with, you know, Elizabeth, Victor and, and Waldman. And, and the Baron. And the Baron, yeah. So there's like all of these, like the concerned family and friends who are concerned about this man and his secrets and his experiments with air quotes around them. Well, and then, so then you have Jack Griffin himself saying when the villagers all burst in, you know, he has this whole speech and it's all about like prying eyes. Leave and, me like, alone. Yeah. yeah. He says, um, you've driven me to madness with your peering through keyholes and peeping through the curtains. I mean, and this, this theme carries through of just like this idea of hiding, yeah. you know, of, of hiding behind things. Mm-hmm. He, constantly is like i want to be left alone mm-hmm. and you're like yeah that's all we really want <laughs> and he also makes a lot about how wearing any kind of clothes whatsoever is a disguise to him it's like not him he's only himself when yeah. he gets to be naked when he takes everything off well and the first time we see him like take everything off like where it's like you're watching it happen there's no way whale didn't do this on purpose because whale was very meticulous in blocking things. His approach to shooting this movie, because for a lot of it, Claude Rains is like not in the scene. You know, you would have wires or various props rigged to like indicate his presence, but he would block those scenes out as if Rains was there mm-hmm. and then figure out the tricks around that. So there's no way he didn't mean it 
when the first time we see him taking his clothes off, he has his ass pointed directly at us and is like bending over and pulling his pants down. Mm-hmm. Like, come on. <laughs> That's on purpose. Right. It's this idea of like he's only himself when he's nude. And here's the other thing. I love this. He's very aware of his own body as a result. And he's very aware of how well groomed he has to be. He's very mm-hmm. fastidious. And it's a necessity for him. It's a necessity for him to not be found out. It's survival. And it's a vi- that's a very queer thing, too, because straight men, not very aware of their own bodies, no. for one. Because <laughs> they don't have to think about it. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, you're right. There is this, there's this anxiety of needing to know the effects that not just your body where it's at, but also what the effects of the environment are on it. You know, like mm-hmm. how he, he talks about rain and fog and eating. Yes. You know, he knows exactly when and how he could be seen. Yeah. Because he has to. Yeah. But, and yeah, and in that, you, there's also the byproduct of just like, well, I got to keep my fingernails clean and my hair short and, you know, mm-hmm. I got to be nice and clean and smell good. Yeah. So speaking of Kemp and his whole like straightforward scientists and things men should leave alone and, you know, his w- weirdness about drugs and there's this kind of like two, there's almost like a matrixy thing to the idea of injections and test tubes and chemicals making him the real him you know Mm. like i don't want to go too far down a potential trans narrative here because that's not my right but a case might be made there if we're gonna you know talk about the various ways in which this film is is discussing uh, identity and how it pertains to you know i mean we're talking transhumanism here in a way yeah well and I think a point is important to be made that this is something that he wanted to do and so he worked to make it happen for himself. Yeah, exactly. He had to have multiple sessions Mm -hmm. and procedures to do this. So there's stuff there. But to the point of Kemp and his whole thing, God, where do you begin with Kemp? He is a complicated character. He's complicated. He's (laughs) complicated. Relationship status, it's complicated. That's what it says on the Invisible Man's Facebook page. Oh, totally. They're bosom buddies. <laughs> They're bo- we're bosom buddies. <laughs> bosom friends. What is it? Yeah, what, there's like a specific line. Yeah, he says, there's no need to be afraid, Kemp. We're partners. Bosom friends. Yeah. He refers to himself and Kemp as partners multiple, multiple times. times. Yeah. And his relationship with Kemp is far more significant than his relationship to Flora. We only see him in the same scene as Flora twice, and in one of those moments, he's dead. And in the first time we see them together, he forgot about her. He forgets she existed. (laughs) Kemp comes in and is like, oh, it's Flora and Dr. Cranley, and he's like, Flora? Flora? Oh, I forgot. (laughs) He he literally forgot her existence. He forgot he was engaged to her because he was too busy being a toxic partner to Kemp. (laughs) So toxic. He was too busy abusing Kemp. But also Kemp sucks too. Okay, so this is the other thing. This movie hates Kemp. Mm -hmm. Like, and it does not want you to like Kemp. Like Frankenstein, you could say like, Victor is, you know, he's nothing. Right. But... He's maybe the guy we're supposed to be rooting for. This movie wants you to know right away, we do not like Kemp. Kemp is not your friend. We're going to see bad things happen to Kemp, and you're going to be okay with it because Kemp fucking sucks. Mm -hmm. He's explicitly trying, like the first time we meet him, I think he's explicitly trying to talk Flora away from Jack to him. He's a bad friend. He's, He's constantly lying. He's constantly a coward. So every time that Jack says something to him like, you're a dirty little coward, Kemp. You always were. And here's the other thing. He always hated Kemp. He says that. Or that he always, he never trusted Kemp or always thought less of Kemp. You know, even before he was insane. Mm-hmm. So we're supposed to be like, oh, even the Jack Griffin we would have liked. Hated this guy. Hated this guy. So this guy just sucks, period. Yeah. So we're with him every time he talks shit to Kemp. Yeah. And when Kemp dies, you're like, fuck yeah. That rules. Mm-hmm. That, and that's Kill such a great again. scene, especially because Kemp's whole idea was so dumb. Oh you know? my God, Kemp's plan? Yeah, what a fucking idiot. So Kemp also basically acknowledges that he's not just a liar, but a snoop as well. Yeah. Like he is, when they're going through Griffin's lab, he <laughs> talks about all the different ways he's kind of spied on Griffin, yeah, basically. Yeah, he's been keeping tabs on him. Mm-hmm. And everyone's like, wait, 
you know all this how? Oh, you suck. Right. <laughs> like, even Flora doesn't like him. It's clear Dr. Cranley probably doesn't like him either. Like, I just don't think anyone in this movie likes Kemp. It's very interesting because he's set up as your romantic lead, quote unquote, but he's just a sniveling shitbag the whole time. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like this movie doesn't have a protagonist. It like, doesn't. It's like the viewer is the protagonist. You are asked to kind of observe all of this, you know? And it has a whipping boy, and it has a guy that you're supposed to kind of cheer on, even though you know he's not a good guy. And it has a portrayal of, like, you know, the mess that society is, including the institutional failure of the very concept of policing. (laughs) I mean, this movie says a cab, like straight up. Yeah, every every police officer is... (laughs) Bumbling idiot. They're either useless or they're cruel. Like none of the policemen in this movie are like helpful. And there's a couple that are like funny, you know, that say funny things and are kind of charming, but they're also like definitely being presented as cops that aren't doing their jobs appropriately. Yeah. All the cops here suck. I love that. I mean, so essentially, yeah, this movie doesn't have a protagonist. I think what we're watching is we're cheering on Jack Griffin as he becomes this, like, lunatic and does all these crazy things, but then also then needing to, like, have him get his comeuppance. I mean, you do have—that's the thing. You do have to punish him Mm -hmm. or at least remove him from society. You can't just have the movie be like, and then he wins. Right. And he's ruling the world because the idea is, like, it's, it's a tragedy. It's a Greek tragedy in a lot of ways. Because he's a tragic figure who has a tragic flaw and it's hubris. Mm-hmm. And in this movie, you kind of see, like, he, when he first comes into this, like, he's, he's getting refused service. There's gossip about him. Which uh, that right there is pretty queer. Right? Yeah, exactly. And then even when they're kicking him out, he starts begging. He's like, please, don't kick me out. It's a, and he says it's a matter of life and death. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about that too is that this is at the point where he's trying to find quote unquote a way back. Yep. It's like he's trying to ungay himself. Yeah, he went too so. far. And this is also, you know, very much a path that a lot of queer people walk, myself included, is he wants the ability to be invisible, to be himself, but he wants the ability to also go back whenever he needs to in order to function in society, in order to yeah, blend in, society, to live his normal life. Yeah. So he wants both. Yeah, exactly. You know? And he's torn between the appeal of both. And then when Flora sees him, her whole pitch to him is this heteronormative life of come back to me and marriage and kids and holidays you know well and that's what i mean and that's i think his you, idea you of finding this to have that cure. stability well it's like when i was you know in the process of coming out i would be like well you know eventually i'm gonna marry a woman but i'm just gonna fuck men on the side <laughs> like that's literally <laughs> yeah, what i told yeah. myself was the how i had to live yeah and I, it didn't seem wrong to me it was just like no i get to i can i'll just have to find a way to do both yeah because society won't let you have what you deserve in society while also letting you be yourself. Exactly, yeah. 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 You have to put and on this, this costume. And this movie is about the fucking tragedy of that. And you know, honestly, okay, so yes, we do know that that monocaine causes madness and aggression. However, honestly, it's a, a, a lot of the escalation of this situation is done by the police. You know, like at first well, the invisible man's behavior is really when he when he gets pushed after being after begging and finding out that okay they're not going to leave him alone his behavior is really again it's just a trickster god it's just pranking you know and it, and it's messing with people including the police but it's really just that they keep upping the game these police officers yeah you know yeah. and so like he, well, it and, makes him more and more aggressive and they're not we're seeing the results of that in the world too it's not just them hunting him and upping the stakes against him and closing him into a corner, they're also, like, alienating this entire village and, like, accusing them all of lying and, like, not listening to any of these people. And it's almost like, yeah, the the whole function of the police force in the world of this movie is to make things more difficult for everyone else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Like I mean, like, the threats life. that that p- police chief gives the village, oh, villagers yeah. when he's, like... You'll you'll all be the laughing stock of the country. Like, yeah, exactly. 
Yeah, they the the police in this movie is are designed to just exacerbate whatever's going on. Which always makes me wonder, like, then when he kills that cop, you know, the sergeant or head cop, chief of police, whatever the fuck asshole that says that, mm-hmm. why are the villagers sad? I mean, if I were Jack Griffin, I'd be like, uh, you're welcome. This guy was going to make you the laughing stock of the whole country, and now he's definitely not going to do that. So, yeah. I mean, we good? <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> but not only does the police effort at, have the effect of making Jack Griffin more and more aggressive and angry and, and violent, but it also is part of what blows up his ego, right? Because the more men they send <laughs> yeah. his way after him, the more he realizes how hard he is to catch. And so the bigger his head gets about yeah, who ex- he is. Exactly. You know? And it's like pushing him into this like Batman villain level of like, Oh, well, now I'm going to fucking take over the world because I can do anything. Yeah. I, that does push him to a point, too, because like all of his stuff with Kemp and his many monologues about, oh, I, it's all great. It's all so great. But at one point he says, the whole world's my hiding place. I can stand amongst them day or night and laugh at them. Like, that's part of that, too, right? Mm-hmm. Of that, like, I can pass. I can pretend, you know, they won't know I'm there. But that also leads to him saying shit like, even the moon is frightened of me. Right. Well, that's that's <laughs> the point where you know that he's officially been pushed all the way over the edge. Yeah. That whole, yeah, that whole monologue where he talks about even the moon being frightened of him to Flora is just like, okay. Dude, well, he, he starts, it's almost like he's talking like a drag queen contestant on RuPaul's Drag Race. Mm-hmm. Like, where he's like, the heteronormative life isn't for me. I want power, you know? And it's like he's getting, it's, the invisible man is not here to make friends, you know? It, there's a theatricality in it, in addition to the, like, you know, the super villainy of it, that it's like, it knows it's exaggerated. You know, the performance itself is self-aware. There's this level of, like, you know, you all created this monster. Mm-hmm. You know, if you won't if you won't accept me, if I can't be a part of you, yeah. then I'm going to rule you. I'm going to yeah. destroy you. Yeah, but then the minute he is in the process of doing these things, of like displaying his power, he's having fun with it. It's no longer about like, you'll grovel at my feet, I'll destroy you all. It's like he's singing songs and saying naughty boy while slapping a cop. Mm-hmm. He's like basic he's pulling pranks. He's playing it's horseplay. He's playing grab ass, essentially. Yeah. Like, he's just fucking with people. So he's still having a good time. There's, like, joy in it. Well, and it's almost like a childlike joy in the sense that it's almost like he doesn't even see the effects of his actions. Like, when he throws that guy over the cliff. Yeah. And then he's, like, laughing. And he's like, want to go join your friend? And, like, <laughs> it do, like it's like it, it's like does he even understand what he's doing or process yeah. this from... Yeah. yeah when, it, when he does that, it's like, yeah, okay, we're beyond the capacity for empathy now like he no longer sees people as human which is what happens when you yourself are dehumanized you know Mm -hmm. and essentially he is because visibility being seen feeling seen is an important part of the human experience and of forming an identity and therefore of feeling human like that's the whole thing is that the monocane thing was invented because and it's just like the abnormal brain in frankenstein where it's like well We don't have the time to show that the process of being invisible would just naturally lead to this kind of madness. So we got to come up with like a sci-fi little twist Mm -hmm. to make it explicit so that we can just explain it and move on, which is fun. But also like you take that out and it's just like, yeah, well, this is about the idea of feeling seen by the world and accepted. And he doesn't feel that. Right. I mean, there is that line even, which I found really interesting when he says to Kemp, he says to Kemp, you'll feel better if you can see me, won't you? Yeah. You know, like he knows. Yeah. He knows in order to be on the, the that level that he needs to be seen. He needs to wear that costume. And then in addition to that, he says at one point to Kemp, well, then we're going to get you invisible so that you can do these things too, so that I can have a break. But really, we all know what that is. Right. It's I need someone like me. I need someone who understands how I feel. And that is also the vampire thing. And vampires, everyone, if you're not aware, are gay as fuck. They're the gayest. (laughs) They are the gayest. 
You don't get gayer than vampires. <laughs> no. <laughs> so that's also a vampire thing of the like creating another one like you or turning someone to be like you so that they can validate your experience. Absolutely. And, you know, in some stories, in, in a lot of vampire stories, actually, mm-hmm. it is like looked down on. That is like a threatening thing. It's like the puritanical response to that. But in this case... <laughs> It's not played that way. No. There's not this sense of fear for Kemp, fear at this idea of, yeah. of like, oh, he's going to make you just like him. No, there's, it's almost, I mean, it's almost sensual, really. I, look, his relationship with Kemp is very, com- we already did it's this. Complicated. It's complicated. It's complex. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there are complexities to it. But yeah, it, it, it often feels romantic. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, in a very toxic way. It's very toxic. Well, in his response, it, Kemp's response to all of this, the fear of it, it is, I mean, it is kind of that fear of like, oh my God, he's going to make me like him. I, you know, I got to get out of this. Yeah. Like he's, this is too far. You know, like it was fine when we were just playing behind closed doors, but you want yeah, me to ma- bring it out, out into in the, the world. Open? Yeah. Like, no, no, I can't. Yeah. You want me to be explicit? Like you want it to be known I'm with you? Uh-uh. Right. <laughs> now I'm going to call the cops on you. And tell them your secrets. Yeah. Gross, Kemp, you piece of shit. And also, like, he has a... Griffin has a flirtatious relationship with the cops as well. Like, when he's horsing around with them, it almost feels like he's flirting a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. But the thing with Kemp is that he's also the only character that I can think of who is explicitly interested romantically in a woman in this movie. The only couple, heterosexual couple, that we see is Una O'Connor and her husband, the other owner. And they're very fun. But again, it's not a sensual relationship. Like, we get that they love each other, but it's like they're sitcom mom and dad. Right. I would argue, though, in Kemp's case, his attraction to Flora feels very similar to the feelings you get when he's talking about Griffin's lab and and spying on him and his experiments, where it's like... If he wants to be Griffin. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he wants to be Griffin, which... Is it feels like it could be projection, yeah. right? He's jealous of Griffin and he wants to know what makes Griffin so great. And here's the thing they are obsessed with each other because Griffin is also obsessed with Kemp. Mm-hmm. He goes a long way to catch him and kill him. And it feels like he's chasing someone he's in love with who betrayed him. Yeah. Who it's, hurt him in like the worst like way. It's like a Hannibal and Will Graham thing going on between them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're just obsessed with each other. And they don't know how to express that in a constructive way. So, you know, Kemp ends up in a car that gets knocked off a cliff and explodes. I love that scene. <laughs> it's so great. The whole thing. when it just, It's just like you expect this movie from 1933, you know, as... Griffin is monologuing for the like fourth or fifth time about what a fucking piece of shit Kemp is and how terrible he is and how stupid he is and how easy it's going to be to kill him. You're expecting this whole time for something to intervene and it just doesn't. Like he wins Mm -hmm. in that way. (laughs) Yeah, honestly, you know, we we talked earlier about how Griffin had to be punished. You couldn't just get away. But he gets... He does win. He does get everything he wanted. Yeah. People he were... accomplished everything he said he was going to. Yeah. They and... groveled at his feet a little bit. Mm-hmm. And he killed Kemp and he derailed a train. He caused a lot of mayhem. He got famous. <laughs> yeah. Look, he had a party. And then he just, you know, he laid down to nap because he was like, well, I guess I did everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Invisible. Look, Jack Griffin is here for a good time, not a long time. <laughs> well, and then I always find it really interesting at the end... You know, he's sleeping in the hay and then they smoke him out. And he doesn't put up much of a fight at that point. Like considering everything that he had done to like get out and to like run circles around everybody, he just kind of walks through the snow. Yeah. Like, yeah, there's no running. There's no trying to conceal his tracks. It's, it's almost like, yeah, he's, he's like, well, like I did everything. Well, it's, yeah, it's, I needed to do it now. It's inevitability. Yeah. And that's part of the tragedy of it. And that's part of the like you know, somberness of it too. Just like, well, party's over. You know, this is what happens now. Well, and then that leads to his, his last line ever in this world where he says to Flora that I wanted to come back to you, darling. I failed. 
I meddled in things man must leave alone. It's like his last yeah. thing that he ever says is acknowledging that he couldn't do it. He yeah. couldn't be with her. I can't be straight. So I might as well be dead. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh, man. Well, look, I don't want to... There's a whole lot to be picked apart there, but... I mean, yeah, we could we could say a lot about that aspect of it, but we don't need to. <laughs> it's... I think anybody uh, that yeah. exists in or around the LGBTQ world understands that yeah. notion. Yeah, and we can just leave it alone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we don't really need to do that. But, you know, again, it's there. But it's almost, too, there's almost like a quality of like, well, my boyfriend's dead, so now what am I going to do? You know? Mm-hmm. It's almost like, when I'm going to go back to Flora. I just killed the love of my life. <laughs> Right. There's a lot of other like queer and queer adjacent stuff too in this movie. There's like a big, well decorated house. Mm-hmm. We have a manor that uh, Whale gets to do some nights set dressing on for a bit. I do think it's interesting that when he's chasing that woman, he's wearing pants. <laughs> oh. It's like the one time he's menacing someone with pants on. It's it's the one like woman he's chasing. Is that the the time when he's singing? Here we, Here we go, go gathering, gathering nuts, nuts in May. May, nuts in May, <laughs> nuts in May. Here we go gathering nuts in May on a cold and chilly morning or whatever, something like that. You know, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. <laughs> well, he's wearing pants. There's a moral panic bit. You know, a mob, an angry mob, hysteria. God, I love, I love it when he's just fucking everything up. I also love the little detail you get when he's uh, when the chief is being interviewed by. <laughs> My boyfriend, Dwight Fry. Dwight Fry, baby. Uh, I love the little this detail. This might be the hottest Dwight. No, Renfield. No, yeah. No, I, I, I prefer um, Fritz. Fritz, you're a Fritz. I'm a Fritz. You're a Fritz. I'm a Renfield. That, that's that's that tracks. He's real hot in this, too. He is. He's, and he's like just as intense. Oh, I, I don't know. He's more intense in this for some reason. <laughs> just his eyes. It's his eyes. His eyes are so fucking intense. Yeah. Anyway, so it, when he's interviewing the chief... The little detail that, you know, we only we see Griffin kill two members of the search party, but the chief gives the detail that he's actually killed 20. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's wild. Yeah. He's killed a lot of people. Well, or maybe that's the cops lying. Yeah, that could be. Because, I mean, these I don't trust any of these fucking cops. You know, I killed a stupid little policeman, smashed his head in. God, that's one of my favorite lines. (laughs) And uh, how's this for a hairbrush? George Henry? He borrows Kemp's clothes. I love that. He's having a sleepover. Yeah, I, I, lo- I do love the pajama look. <laughs> yeah, oh, the pajamas are great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I think, that, I think that gives a pretty good overview of the queerness of the Invisible Man. Yeah, there's just, I mean, look, it's a lot. And Whale specifically, explicitly put a lot of his hometown into this film. And so... You kind of have to imagine that... I think that maybe more than any of his other characters, he relates probably most to Jack Griffin. Yeah, I could see that. You know, I mean, Dr. Frankenstein, Henry Frankenstein is a big one. And then, I mean, Dr. Pretorius in... I mean, we're going <laughs> to talk a we're lot We're going to talk a lot week. about Bride of Frankenstein. That's the thing, is this movie gives us... It, it's great, because it does a number of things. It gives us... It gives Whale another hit. It puts him back on top after Old Dark House, which, despite being, in my opinion, an artistic feat, is not as well-received as it probably should have been. But uh, this movie puts him back on top, and it, and it re-establishes Universal as, like, the king of the horror studios at the time. And it leads us to, like, arguably the most unique, singular, Baroque, decadent, gothic, amazing, and entertaining of all of the Universal Monster movies. And probably maybe James Whale's best movie? Question mark? And we're going to talk about it next week. Bride of Frankenstein. Bride of Frankenstein. I'm glad you bring it up because I had a question for you. Uh Uh-huh. We don't need to talk about Bride of Frankenstein because we're going to talk about it probably too much next week. Yeah. And... there is no argument that Bride of Frankenstein is the queerest of these films. <laughs> yeah. So we can just save that for next week. Yeah. But the three that we've talked about so far, Invisible Man, Old Dark House, and Frankenstein, how oh. would you rank the queerness? Okay. I thought you were going to give me a fuck, Mary kill, and I was going to be oh, like, no. I, that, couldn't, I couldn't do I that to dare. you. I'd kill myself before I'll kill any of these. Marry all three, kill self. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Marry all three, fuck the world, kill self. <laughs> 
Um, to me, I would say I think the old dark house is the queerest, followed by Frankenstein, followed by Invisible Man. But I, I don't think know. I think you're right. That's the way I see it too. Old, I mean, old dark house is just too like. For one, it's the only of these three that has Ernest Thesiger in it. So, like, right there, that's a, already a big deal. But it's, like, I think it's doing the most to explore different types of queerness. Like, different... Like, alternative... Different queer identities, yeah. maybe. Different queer... Uh, alternative states Identities and <laughs> dynamics. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, like, the family thing is probably most at work there, too. Mm-hmm. than it is uh, of, of all three of these films. So yeah, I think you're right. And Old Dark House is probably of these three my favorite as well. Like I will say, this watch of Frankenstein, I fell in love with it all over again in a way that I hadn't in a long time. Because I, I get so into defending some of the lesser Frankenstein movies and some of the lesser celebrated universal monster movies in general that I kind of sometimes can lose sight of just how much I love the original Frankenstein and just how well it works as a horror movie. But Old Dark House of the three is, is like hands down my favorite. It, yeah, I think you're right. It's the queerest and then Frankenstein and then Invisible Man not too far behind Frankenstein. Okay. So I think we're good, right? Yeah, this is good. I lo- I'm just so glad we're doing this. Mm-hmm. I love these fucking movies. And it's, it's important to celebrate. It really is. And it's really important. I, I love this opportunity to get to maybe remind people who might, you know, it, they might know, folks, listeners, I don't know what your level of initiation is. I don't want to assume where anybody's at. Right. But I do love the opportunity to maybe like remind folks of like, hey, <laughs> horror is fucking queer and it always has been. And he- here's a really great chunk of queer history and horror history. And we get to celebrate that in this man's work. And I just think that's neat. <laughs> it is. It's really special. Yeah. We'll be back next week with Bride of Frankenstein if yeah, we're, gonna- we're still alive. <laughs> yeah, if we're still alive, we will conclude our Pride coverage of Jimmy Whale next week. And until then, bye, good luck. All right, you fools, you've brought it on yourselves. All right, bye, good luck. TTFN. <laughs>